Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 30. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has, come, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their de destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. I'm not certain whether it's true for you or not, but it is certainly true for me that a new year is full of added energy. Uh, there's the energy of Christmas and there's the energy of New Year, uh, and all of this creates for agitation in my soul and my mind. Uh, there's the added energy that uh, might be described as the depressing energy of looking back at a year that has gone by, realizing very clearly that I did not, yet again, I did not again achieve greatness. I still, uh, even this many years, have a long list of things to work on for the next year. Uh, there's a sense of, I feel that energy pressing in on me. Uh, there's also the optimistic energy that wants to believe that this new year, Maybe 2024, I'm going to get some things right. I'm going to make some real progress. I'm going to be the man I know I can be. Feel some of those energies. I don't know if that's true of you. Maybe you just buy a new calendar or flip into January. Nothing's going on. But for me, I feel both discouragement, depression. Oh, man, another year's gone by, and here I am. Uh, and I also feel a sense of energy, like I want to really want to get this next year going right. Uh, the idea of New Year's resolutions is a common one. Some of us are all in on New Year's resolutions. We're ready to share our list of goals with anybody who will slow down long enough for us to talk about it. We're happy to talk about our resolutions, while some of us think that New Year's resolutions is just another name for silly lies that we tell ourselves. And so we're just going to keep on keeping on, and our plan is to let what happens happen. So whether or not you're a resolution or goal maker or not, all of us have a definition 
of what life is and what it ought to be. Some of you have resolutions, eager to see 2024 become something different, something new. Some of you don't do resolutions, but life is going to be what it's going to be. Whether you're a resolutions person or not, all of us have a definition of life and what it ought to be. I want to capitalize on this energy, this phenomenon of New Year's reorientation by looking at a text that sets out a biblical definition of life and what it's supposed to be. We're all thinking about life and what it ought to be, and I want the scriptures to be able to speak into this moment and to tell us what life ought to be. It seems like a wise thing to do, right? My hope here this morning, my prayer, is that you and I will be enabled to rightly assess our lives and think about our future in light of Christ. We've been thinking about our future, we've been thinking about our lives in light of our most recent uh, blood draw, we've been thinking about our life in recent uh, in light of our cholesterol, our weight, our waist size, our income, a whole host of things. I want the scriptures to speak to us about what life ought to be and the standard by which we should be living. Some of us need to get our lives back in line with what our doctor tells us is healthy. Some of us need to get our lives back in line with what our family needs. But all of us need to reorient our lives to be in line with the gospel. The main idea I want to press in this morning is this. The Christian's life is defined by Christ. Hopefully that's like GED level simple. Hopefully that's easy to grab. The Christian life is defined by Christ. The main idea will be drawn from verse 21 of chapter 1, but we will fill out the meaning of that particular verse by drawing from the whole book of Philippians. And as we work to understand the Christian definition of life, I want to work our way forward with two particular questions as we dig into verse 21. The first question is, who is Paul talking about? Who is Paul talking about? Whose life is he defining? And then secondly, what is he saying? What is this definition of life? Who's Paul talking about and what is he saying? So let's begin first with this question, who is Paul talking about? It's helpful whenever you enter into a book of the Bible to remember who the author is, and it's important to remember that the Apostle Paul is the author of the book of Philippians. He was once an extremely zealous and successful Pharisee who spent his energy defending the truth from errors to the best of his understanding. Unfortunately, Paul didn't see Jesus rightly, and so he spent a portion of his life persecuting Christians. He energetically worked to see Jesus' followers prosecuted to the full extent of the law of Moses, which was death. He took his work on the road and spent himself tearing apart the church wherever he could find it. As Paul was en route to the next church in Damascus, the risen Jesus appeared to him and asked him why he was persecuting him. Jesus reoriented Paul that day. To put it lightly, Jesus reoriented Paul that day. The once zealous persecutor of Christ and his people became an apostle and a servant of Christ and his church. Jesus uniquely chose Paul to love and, and to care for his people. The intelligence and passion that once spent, was once spent killing Christians was now being spent in a life deeply marked by suffering for Christians. Paul is in prison for preaching Christ when he writes this letter to the church in the city of Philippi. And here in chapter 1, verse 21, he says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's important to remember who is saying this, right? Paul was not always the apostle writing from a jail cell. Paul was once a man throwing Christians into jail because that is what he believed. But Christ came directly to him and said, we're going to do life a little bit differently. We're going to redefine your life. You and I live in a world that is deeply shaped by a pluralism that promotes the idea that everyone is right and no one is wrong 
except that person who tells other people that they are wrong. Okay? It's important to understand this. When we come to this text, when we come to this verse, we are coming at it from a place, from a household, from a culture that says pluralism is the way to go, meaning you're right, she's right, he's right. If we contradict, that doesn't really matter because no one's wrong. The only thing wrong that you can say is to tell somebody else that you're wrong. Okay? That's, that's how pluralism works, and that's the way we that's the culture we live in. That influence, even if you laugh and chuckle at that and say, that's just so silly, that's the world you live in, and that is deeply influencing your mind. And that influence on your mind is influencing the way you interpret Paul. And so I want to be mindful of that. Pluralism causes people to think in such a way that there's lots of room for different varieties of religions, self-expressions, and truth claims. Since the only bad guys in a pluralistic society are those who tell other people that they're wrong, it's common for people to preface themselves by saying such, something such as this. Hey, for me, gender is a fluid thing. Uh, this polite pluralist might even finish their statement with a, with, a, with a statement like this. You might think differently, and that's totally okay, but that's just me. In my perspective such and so, okay? When Paul makes his statement, for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain, we've got to recognize that we're coming from a place of pluralistic influence, and we've got to ask ourselves, is Paul speaking like this polite pluralist? Is he saying, for to me, is he, is he saying, I'm just speaking for myself, I'm not speaking for anybody else? Is he like the polite pluralist? Is he saying, in effect, you're free to believe however you want, but for me personally, to live as Christ and to die as game? Is that the way Paul is speaking here? I don't think so. The reason I don't think Paul is speaking as a polite pluralist is I've already said the reason why I don't think that's right. Paul is in prison for preaching Christ. Those who believe that everyone is right about God don't risk their lives and their comfort as missionaries. Pluralism doesn't send out foreign missionaries. People don't suffer for the sake of pluralism. If everybody ends up on the good end of things, regardless of what they do, what difference does it make if people believe as we do? Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 and following, And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, listen, the name that is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That doesn't sound like pluralism, does it? He's speaking for everyone. Paul also says in chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, that those who oppose Christ in favor of their own comfort are, quote, enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Paul is in jail, and years after the writing of this particular, particular letter, he's going to be executed for teaching the way he does, that every knee will bow. I don't think Paul is speaking as a polite pluralist in chapter 1, verse 21, because he firmly believes that Jesus alone is worthy of worship and those who do not confess Christ as master will suffer the destruction of God for their idolatry. That is not in line with the spirit of the age, is it? To say Christ or nothing, all for Christ. So I think we can say, in light of these particular passages, in light of these particular realities, that Paul is not speaking like a pluralist when he says, for to me. But could it be said that he's recognizing himself as an apostle? 
Is he recognizing himself as one who's uniquely visited by Jesus and called to a particularly devoted life? When Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, is Paul saying, hey, I'm an apostle. Jesus visited me on the road to Damascus. I'm uniquely called to be one of the very, very few people who will be involved in this first, these first plantings of the first churches. I think that's a more challenging question, but I don't think that he is defining his life only and not other lives. I don't think Paul is saying, I'm in this unique category where for, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul begins and ends this letter by putting himself among the church and not in some separate category. We might look at chapter 1, verse 21, and say, wow, that is an elite level. That is for the rangers. That is for the seals. That is for the extra special, top-grade Christians to say, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But look what Paul does throughout his letter in the first verses. He puts himself right in the church. He doesn't say, I'm in a special category and you're over there. He sees himself among the church. Paul and Timothy are both servants of Christ with him in verse 1. And everyone in the church is a saint with him in Christ. The men serving with him are brothers in chapter 4, verse 21, and he carries the greetings of other saints in chapter 4, verse 22. Paul is connecting with Timothy. He's connecting with the saints. He's connecting with people in Philippi. He's showing himself to be a part of the, of the church. Instead of elevating himself into a unique category, Paul repeatedly speaks of himself among his partners. Paul thanks God in his regular prayers for the, this church, according to chapter 1, verse 5, quote, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Do you see how Paul sees himself in partnership with the church? These, this praying church, they're his partners. Paul holds these people in his heart, according to chapter 1, verse 7, quote, for you are all partakers with me of grace. The Philippians' prayers help him in chapter 1, verse 19. Timothy is a valuable teammate in chapter 2, verse 19 and 22. Epaphroditus is described as a fellow worker and fellow soldier in chapter 2, verse 25. Yodia and Syntyche have labored side by side with Paul in the gospel in chapter 4, verse 3. And in verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4, Paul is clear to communicate that the church in Philippi sustained him and made his ministry possible by sharing in his troubles and financial needs. All of these pieces working together, it doesn't seem that Paul seems to think of himself in a unique category of Christian whose life is Christ and death is gain. Paul's life and labors are marked by deep and wide partnerships. Not only this, but Paul unashamedly calls Christians to follow him in his example. In chapter 3, verse 17, he says, brothers, join in imitating me. And in chapter 4, verse 9, he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, stand back in awe because I'm one of the elite. No, practice these things. Paul says, we're partners. We're working together. I'm leaning on you. You're leaning on me. I'm fulfilling a particular role in the mission of the kingdom of God, and you're fulfilling a particular role. Your prayers have sustained me. Your financial offerings have sustained me. You have been partners with me in the same gospel. You have been fellow workers and fellow soldiers right alongside with me. And then, if he couldn't be any more clear, he says, listen, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, and you should imitate me. You should watch me and what you've seen me do, practice these things. Okay? My hope is, is by putting these observations together, you can look at this and see verse 21 and to say, that is not some special calling for elite Christians. That is not the definition of apostles and their lives. That is not simply the definition of foreign missionaries or elite Christians. This is the definition of everyone who claims the name of Christ. All who are in Christ. 
this is applied to. It's unmistakable and true that Paul is unique. I want to be very, very clear. There's no one like Paul in the story of the church. No one. He's utterly unique, and and he was uniquely zealous as a servant of Christ and the church, and he's been a central figure among the apostles and New Testament writers. Paul's statement, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, is truly strong, and it's all-encompassing, just like his life. We may think that it's utterly wise and sensible for Paul to think that way. We might even think that it's a good idea for pastors and missionaries to say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But there are many who take the name Christ, who take the name of a Christian, many who have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, many who regularly partake of the Lord's Supper, who think this is a bit much to expect for them. I'm glad that for you, to live as Christ and to die as gain. But for me, I'm a Christian, but man, to live as Christ, to die as gain, that just seems to be asking way too much. It's not uncommon for Americans to say that they are Christians and then give the caveat, but not one of those crazy Christians. You heard that before? And what they mean by this There are truly crazy Christians, I don't deny the category, but what is often meant by this statement is that they don't live their life out of sync with the world. I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those crazy Christians. What do you mean by crazy Christian? Well, like somebody who goes to church every Sunday, somebody who reads God's word, somebody who obeys Christ's commands. If that's your definition of crazy Christian, you don't know what a true Christian is. But this is common in the world we live in. These so-called Christians do romantic relationships like the world. They do entertainment like the world. They spend all their time and money on themselves like the world. They grumble, slander, and gossip like the world. They hear the scriptures say, "For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, and they invent one of many reasons why this doesn't apply to them. If it is your aim to be saved, and you call yourself a Christian and yet excuse yourself from a life lived in glad obedience to Jesus, hear me, I want to say this as gently but as clearly as possible. I must soberly warn you that you are deceived. If you call yourself a Christian and don't see your life as belonging to Christ, you're deceived. You've been lied to. You are lying to yourself. There is no category of Christian who will be saved whose life does not belong to Christ. To live is Christ and to die is gain is the motto, the aim, the purpose, and the happy claim of every single Christian who will experience salvation. There are many Christians who are discouraged because their lives are boring. They know that to be a Christian is to live as Christ. They know that their life belongs to Christ, but they're discouraged because they see in this motto, in this statement, this grandiose call to live as Christ and to die as gain, and they're discouraged because they look at their lives and think, wow, I'm just living a really boring life. You may not be called to foreign missions or to pastoral ministry. It may be God's call on your life to live quietly in the same house in the same church your entire life. But if you are in Christ, if you are trusting in Christ, if you are saved, you are in Christ, and for you, hear me, boring old common Christian, for you to live as Christ and to die is gain. 
Your abilities and God's calling may be radically plain, but praise God, he has called millions and millions of Christians to live as Christ in some truly common ways. Okay? Don't get it wrong. Don't be discouraged. To live in, as Christ and to die as gain means all of life. But that doesn't necessarily mean a radically impressive life. It's a different life from the world for sure. But sometimes what radical obedience to Christ looks like is going to work five days in a row and doing work all five of those days. No one will write a biography about how you worked five days in a row and you worked every one of those days. No one will come and interview you for the newspaper but your life will be unto Christ because that's what God called you to do. If God has given you a, an incredibly boring life, praise God. Live it as unto Christ. Do not be discouraged if God hasn't called you to be a foreign missionary, if God hasn't called you to be a nationally renowned author, if God has simply called you to love your husband, and that's it, for you, Hear me, to live as Christ and to die as gain. The motto to live as Christ and to die as gain is true for the apostle and the bedridden believer. It's true for the missionary, the mom, the 12-year-old, and the 90-year-old. If you trust Christ and treasure him as your Lord, then this motto belongs on your lips and your life. It belongs on your lips and your life, whether you think your life is impressive or not, whether you are just buried in same old commonness, or you, God has called you to something particular and peculiar. To live is Christ and to die is gain is the motto for every one of Christ's disciples. Okay, so we've wrestled. Who is Paul talking to? Who's he, who's he speaking to? We've decided he's not speaking to some elite Christian, and we've decided that he's not speaking simply about himself. Paul is speaking for every Christian. Okay. Now, as we see this, who his audience is, we need to be careful to look and to study at what exactly he's saying. So second point, what is Paul saying now that we've established that Paul is speaking to everyone everywhere and every when, if I can make up a word, it would be good for us to look more closely at what exactly he's saying when he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. The immediate context, context verse 20 and verse 22, are particularly helpful, but we're going to pull in the whole book of Philippians to help us understand what Paul means in this statement. The first thing Paul means is the glorious good news of receiving God's pardon and living under his smile. To live is Christ. The first thing that Paul wants us to understand is that this means living under God's pardon and living under his smile. It means having his peace and his grace. In chapter 1, verse 2, Paul greets the church at Philippi with the common New Testament greeting. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a popular greeting, and if you've read any of Paul's epistles, you, might, uh, you would be excused if you were like, I thought he said that in the other book. Well, he did say that in the other letter. Uh, but this is absolutely foundational and important. It's a popular and foundational reminder that for those who trust in Jesus, there is peace between us and the righteous judge of all the earth. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We just say that, and some of us have that memorized, and we just roll right through it. But the judge of all the earth, and me, sinner, rebel, there's peace between us. Not only is there peace between sinners like me and the righteous judge of, the all, of all the earth. Listen, when Paul says grace to you, he's 
teaching us and reminding us that God's normal posture and attitude toward us is one of generosity. To live is Christ is to remember that through Christ we have peace with God and that God stands ready, oiled, greased up, ready to be generous to us. That's God's natural posture for those who are in a gracious relationship with him. God is smiling upon forgiven sinners like you and me because of what Christ has done. In verse 8, Paul says that his regular remembrance, his persistent prayers, and his longing to be with the church, listen, is, quote, the affection of Christ Jesus. Think about that. Paul's love for the Christians at Philippi, his jail-enduring love for these Christians is Christ's love expressed through him. This serves as the staggering reminder that to live as Christ is to be a person who is blessed by the genuine fondness of Jesus. Paul says, I want to be with you, I want to bless you, and the reason I want to be with you Bless you is because Jesus is trying to communicate to you that he loves you and he wants to be with you and he wants to bless you. Paul's love for the church is Christ's love being worked out through Paul. Jesus is fond of the believers at Philippi. In chapter 1, verse 19, Paul refers to the care of Christ as being a help brought on by the prayers of saints. And in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he speaks of being encouraged, comforted, loved, and supported by Christ through fellow believers. In chapter 3, Paul talks about the incredible cost of life in Christ. He says he has, quote, suffered the loss of all things to be found in Jesus But Paul says in verse 8 that it is totally worth it. There's been a great cost, he says, but he has received the superior gift of knowing Christ. Paul is just saying, if we're going to understand what it means to be in Christ, to live as Christ, is to understand that Christ is the most expensive one on the lot. But it's totally worth it. By simple faith in Jesus, he has received the embrace of friendship and the judgment of righteous in God's sight. To live as Christ is first and foremost to be in a posture of receiving from God. And by sovereign kindness, the Christian belongs to Jesus, according to verse 12 is cheered on to future reward, according to verse 14, and then awarded actual citizenship in heaven with God himself, never to be deported, never to be exiled, but a citizen of heaven. Our identification card, if bear with me with this terrible illustration, my identification card and Christ's identification card say the same location on them. We've received this from Christ that our identity, our citizenship is with God himself. Chapter 4, verse 7 declares that to live is Christ means having an experience of true peace with God that goes beyond our understanding and even calms our anxious hearts and minds, while verse 19 tells us that the glorious riches of Jesus will meet our every need, while verses 21 and 23 remind us that we are united in friendship with other believers and Jesus himself. The first and foundational thing communicated by the Christian motto, to live is Christ and to die is gain, is that we are a people who have received far more good than we realize. Okay, So when you hear in verse chapter 1, verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain, the first and foundational thing you must understand is the gospel. 
is that Christ gives himself to redeem us, to make us his own, and to make us gloriously rich, though what we deserve in our own efforts is death. The first thing we must realize is that we are a people who have received far more good than we realize. I want to press into that. I want to make this clear to you because New Year's resolutions often get us in the mood and in the posture of making laws. Right? Anybody else not able to make it to the 7th of January and not feel crushed by, the own, by your own laws that you laid upon yourself? Resolutions often get us in the mood and the posture of making laws that will help us gain greater rewards. But to live as Christ requires us to stop and recognize the great riches that are already ours and promised to us in Christ. To live as Christ begins with the gladness of being given the inexpressible gift of knowing and being loved by Jesus. I hope that this, this strikes you as something of a bit of a curveball. Drew, I thought you were going to get up and tell us that we got to do, 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 because it's New Year's, and to live is Christ, and we've got to sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. We'll get to that. But it begins first and foremost, and it's totally derailed if you don't, do not lay the foundation that Christ is looking upon you with gladness. And that his posture towards you is one of gentleness and generosity. If you do not understand that you already have peace with God, any sort of working that you will do will be totally goofed up. To live as Christ means to be at a place of joy, knowing that the one who receives praise from all of creation said, I want you as my friend. What a truly remarkable thing this is. To live as Christ begins here. The second thing that Paul is communicating through this phrase is that our lives are now lived in service and imitation to Christ. To live as Christ means we become more and more like Jesus as we work for the same goals as Jesus. Our lives aren't driven by the fear of death or the hope of retirement. Instead, we live in preparation for the return of Christ. The day that we're really looking forward to in the future, if we're thinking rightly, if we're thinking biblically, is not our wedding day. It's not the day our first child is born. It's not the day we get to retire or we get a promotion. It's not some, any glorious day in the future that you can think of, but the glorious day in the future that you are thinking of is the day of Christ's return. To live as Christ means the day that I'm really looking forward to. There are some lesser things that I'm looking forward to. But the day that I'm thinking about is the day of Christ's return. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 10 speak of growing in godliness in light of the coming day of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 16 speaks of working for Christ until the final buzzer of his return. We're not growing in godliness so that someday when I turn 40, I'm going to be such and so. I'm striving for godliness. I'm striving for Christ-likeness because one day Christ is going to return. I'm not preaching and studying and reading and memorizing and working and laboring and evangelizing and praying because hopefully by the time I'm in my mid-50s, I'm going to have this sweet little place. No, we're, we're working and laboring in the vineyard of the Lord because someday Christ is going to return and I want to be ready for that day. For those so commissioned, Paul speaks of the work of preaching and pro proclaiming Christ in chapter 1, verse 15 and following. And in verse 20, he speaks of his aim to honor Christ in the normalcy of daily life. To live is Christ means difficult yet, quote-unquote, fruitful labor for the sake of the church's joy and progress in the faith, in verse 22, all while his deepest longing is to be with Jesus. 
What it means to live as Christ and to die as gain means to work for the good of the church. It means for preachers to preach Christ. It means for those who aren't preachers to live in a way that honors Christ. And for all of us, it means fruitful labor for the good of the church. All while at the very same time, we enjoy what we're doing. But I really want Jesus to come back. I really want to be with him. I long for the day of his return. Paul tells us in chapter 1, verse 27, that to live as Christ means to live a life worthy or a life shaped by the good news of what Christ has earned for us. We are not to live believing we have to earn God's love, and we're not to live like people who don't care about his commands. We're called to live a life worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? That means I rejoice in Christ. I can't earn God's love because I already have it. But it also means Christ's commands are precious to me, not because I need to obey them to earn his love, but because Christ commands them. To live a life worthy of the gospel, to live as Christ, means Christ is our all. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 8 tell us that to live as Christ means we grow in our thinking like Jesus when he chose to humble himself and serve the neediest and the least deserving. It means simply obeying God's word even when it hurts. Paul looks to the incarnation. Paul looks to the suffering of Christ and he says, have that mind in yourself. I think that's an incredibly powerful statement that might just slide under the radar. Wait, the Son of God became human flesh and then obediently went to the cross and you're telling me that I should have that mind? Wow. It means we imitate Timothy. Not only the mind of Christ, but we also imitate Timothy who carried deep concern for the church. Listen. Timothy canceled his plans to pursue the interest of Christ in chapter 2, verse 21. Sometimes, sometimes we think like, well, if, if Roman guards grabbed me up and said I needed to be crucified or deny Christ, I would certainly go to the cross. And we think in big, grandiose terms. But Paul says, another example of a person who you should think and behave like is Timothy. Timothy had plans. He had a calendar. He had expectations for his future, and he says, nope, the concerns of Christ are now my concerns. Sometimes to live as Christ and to die as gain is so simple as to say, I'm going to reschedule that appointment, and I'm going to do this thing over here. I feel really busy, and it's super easy for me to just skip out on prayer time, super easy for me to say I can't go to the Bible study, super easy for me to just skip out on some of those other things. But Timothy's example is he's saying, you know what, I have a bunch of concerns, but my primary concerns are the concerns of Christ. And I'm going to put my own concerns, my own desires, my own habits, and my own plans to the side so I can have the concerns of Christ. Paul tells us to have the mind of Christ and to imitate Timothy, and not only Christ and Timothy, but to, to, to take on this kind of apprenticeship with this man by the name of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus worked to the point of exhaustion and illness. Why? So that he could rich and retire early. No. He did it for the good of the church. Was Epaphroditus an apostle? Has anybody read the story where Epaphroditus got knocked off a horse and Jesus said to him, why are you persecuting me? No, Epaphroditus was largely a plain person. How do I know that? Because I know nothing about Epaphroditus. And here's this non-apostle Christian who's worked himself for the good of the church. For Epaphroditus to live was Christ and to die was gain. And what that meant for him was he said, illness, exhaustion, it doesn't matter. My life means doing good for the church and the mission of Christ. I'm going to play my part. 
According to chapter 3, verses 2 through 9, to live as Christ means abandoning accolades and worldly definitions of success for the sake of walking with Jesus and being about the work of his kingdom. Chapter 3, Paul is looking at all of his work. He's saying, I had a 401k retirement plan. I had all of these things set up. for. I had mutual funds with the Pharisees, and then I abandoned it. I had a future of fame and glory, and I was going to be authored, and I was going to be rich and famous because I was excelling above all the other Pharisees. Put that all aside, because to have Christ is better. Paul was given the choice between human accolades, between human popularity, between human worldly wealth and Christ, and he said, easy decision. Easy decision. Christ is better. To live as Christ and to lose all that stuff is no thing. This particular call to a life lived to honor Christ and to be like him and to labor in ministry is probably the first thing that comes to mind for many of us when we define what it means to live as Christ. This is certainly right. It's certainly true. It's accurate. But let me remind you that to live as Christ is only half of the motto. The sentence isn't completed with simply to live as Christ. We must remember the other half. To die is gain because life is not fully defined by a love for Christianity or a love for ministry or preaching. To live as Christ and to die as gain is not rightly understood as, as a deep love for living the right way or a deep love even for our church family. Growing in godliness and devotion to his kingdom are wonderful things, but if they are not pursued from an affectionate longing to be with him, to be with Jesus, they are pursued perversely. Do you understand the point being made here? If to live is Christ and to die is gain, is not rightly understood as a whole, where the gain that we get from death is being with Christ, then everything you do, quote-unquote, to live as Christ will be perverted. If preaching is not done out of a genuine love for Christ, it, preaching is wrong. It's perverted. It's disjointed. If loving your family and creating a nice home and living a peaceful and quiet life is your aim and your goal, that's fine. But if it's not done out of a desire to be with Christ and to be in right fellowship with him, it's done inaccurately. It's done twisted. Saints, we don't live rightly simply by saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions. I'm making a nuanced statement here. Listen carefully. By all means, say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, but we don't live rightly simply by doing that. We live rightly when the grace of God motivates us to do these things out of a desire to be with Jesus when he appears. Do you understand the point being made here? The Pharisees lived very righteous, quote-unquote, lives, very godly lives. But when Jesus came, they did not love him. They were not longing for his return. Reading through the entire Bible, spending regular time in prayer, inviting unbelieving co-workers into your home for gospel conversations, and spending less time in front of a screen are all common resolutions. But if you are doing these things without a motivation to be with the one who laid his life down to save you, then you're not living like a Christian. Our aim is to live as Christ because it is gained to be with him in living like him, it's gain to be with him and serving with him. It's gain when he decides when and how we are to go and be with him in death. To live is Christ because we can live in such a way that we walk with him, that we serve with him. And that when death comes, it's gain because we finally get to be with Jesus as we've been living to do in our entire lives. 
Beloved, don't let worldly pleasures keep you from the better pleasure of knowing Jesus. You hear me? I firmly believe that your greatest pleasures are in knowing Jesus. Don't let all of the doing get in the way of the pleasure of knowing Jesus. Don't let the busyness of doing for Jesus keep you from sitting at his feet. I don't want to confuse you, and I feel like my ability to be clear on this point is, is suffering, but let me try to break this down. Okay? I want you to all read your Bible through this year. That would be fantastic. But if you open your Bible and say, Jesus, I want to know you, and then you read, and all you do is get through Genesis this year, that would be better than checking it off and saying, I read the Bible this year. If I would love for all of you to come uh, to the Bible studies that are offered. I would love for you to be here uh, to serve in children's ministry. I'd love for you to be um, pursuing evangelism and all the various ways we can be doing uh, the ministry. But I'm deeply afraid that we would do those things out of a sense of have to and not out of a desire to do those because those are things that Jesus partners with us in. Jesus, you were an evangelist. You cared for sinners. Help me care for my neighbor and have him over for dinner. I know you delight in this, and so let's do this together. Again, I wish I could be far more clear than I'm, I'm being, but beloved, to live as Christ is to enjoy fellowship with him here and now, and to die as gain is because then we finally get to be with him like we've been attempting to our entire lives. Don't let Christian principles or Christian disciplines get in the way of Christ. Let them be servants. Let prayer lead you into the presence of Christ. Let minimizing screen time be a way of enjoying Christ more. Let reading the Bible be a way of spending time with Jesus and not just doing some Herculean feat of reading the entire Bible. Uh, if I'm confusing you, and I'm sure I am, please grab me and let's talk more. Third and finally, um, this final element that Paul gives in his explanation of what it means to live as Christ and to die as gain is the sobering yet glorious call to suffer with Christ. In chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Paul talks about being imprisoned not imprisoned for bad behavior, but imprisoned for Christ. He then says that this particular trial has been part of God's plan to advance the gospel, bringing glory to God and salvation to sinners. Paul lost a lot of freedoms, but he clearly teaches that this is simply part of what it means to live as Christ and to die as gain. Paul doesn't let us assume that suffering for Christ is only for apostles and missionaries. He speaks directly to common people like you and me when he says to the church in chapter 1, verse 29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. I've spent a good chunk of the last two years teaching through the book of Job, and we've talked a lot about grief and about what it looks like to be a good comforter to those who are suffering. These are important and biblical issues, but we would utterly fail if we do not see that part of the life we have been called to live necessarily involves glorifying God in hardship and loss. We want to grieve rightly, we want to come alongside those who grieve rightly, and we want to understand that part of what it means to be a Christian is to suffer uniquely as a Christian. To live as Christ and to die is gain means that you will suffer because Christ is your master. To live as Christ and to die is gain means singing hymns of praise from jail cells and it means singing hymns of praise from hospice rooms. It means desiring the salvation of neighbors more than a quiet and predictable evening at home. It means financially supporting missionaries instead of buying a nicer home or driving a better car. 
It means asking for prayer and support from a fellow Christian when life's disappointments tempt you to become bitter. It means seriously considering devoting your life or what is left of it to serve the poorest of the poor or the many people groups who have no way of hearing the good news of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you find great comfort in the God of all comfort when you go through trials. I hope that you find great comfort from your brothers and sisters who are enabled by the the Spirit and by the Word to come alongside you and bring you comfort in your days of sorrow. But I don't want to communicate that there is a Christian life in which you do not suffer. To be a Christian means to suffer. To play guitar means calluses on your fingers. To rake the leaves means you better wear gloves or you're going to tear your fingers apart. To be a Christian means to suffer and to suffer with Christ. Yet one commentator aptly puts it this way. Life means Christ to me. Christ more and more fully known and loved and served as day follows day. Death means Christ to me. Christ once for all and finally possessed and eternally enjoyed. Brothers and sisters, we are called to suffer with Christ. To live as Christ and to die as gain means that our life will be less fun in the immediate because we're Christians. Do you hear me? This, this comes down and touches our lives because so many, even ourselves, are tempted to say things like, I know that God would want me to be happy. And I know that to be true, that God does want us to be happy. But that does not mean that we continue living in sin with our boyfriend. It does not mean that we continue living for ourselves and not for Christ. To live as Christ means we suffer by obeying him. It means obeying Christ is the right thing to do regardless of what the consequences are. But hear me. God wants us to be happy, but Christian joy comes from knowing Jesus. Walking in the light as he is in the light. Taking his gospel to every corner of the world and suffering with him in the ministry that he's given to us. Brothers, sisters, dying is gain because we get to depart and be with the Lord, yes? But you know what else is gain? Walking in the light with Jesus. Why should I say no to temptation? Because Jesus is walking a path of saying no to temptation. And if I say yes to temptation, I divert from Christ. I want to walk as close to him as possible. Is Jesus working in the world still by his spirit? Absolutely. Where is he working? He's working in the church. I want to be suffering and sacrificing for the church because Christ loves his bride now. I want to care for his bride now. Is Jesus living a a posh life without suffering now? No. By his spirit, he is working amongst Christians who are choosing difficult things. And when I choose difficult things, I'm walking with Christ. Friends, to live as Christ, it's to live with him, to walk with him in the life that we have, and to enjoy fellowship with him when he calls us home in death. Christian joy comes from knowing that the certainty of death will lead us to the certainty of being with the one who loved us and gave himself for us so that we could be with him in endless delight. Brothers and sisters, you have a glorious future waiting for you where of all the other things that we could talk to, you get to be with Jesus You get to be with Jesus. But we're not all running off a cliff and saying, I want to be with Jesus. We're not all drinking bathroom cleaners saying, I'm going to go be with Jesus. We're saying Jesus is walking in the light, and so I'm saying no to ungodliness. Jesus is building up the church, and so I'm with Jesus building up the church. I'm taking the gospel to my neighbors and to the other most parts of the world because I want to be with Jesus. Friend, if you're not a Christian here this morning or if something I said earlier this morning, earlier in my time, struck you, 
Maybe you've been living as a hypocrite and you realize, I call myself a Christian, but to live as Christ is not how I would define my life. Today is the day to realize that and to reorient your life according to the gospel, to say Christ is my life. Death would be gain. It is better to obey Christ and suffer than to be separated from him. Christian, first and foremost, to live is Christ means to enjoy the glorious peace and grace that are yours in Christ by grace through faith. Once you understand that, to be, to live as Christ means to serve him and to suffer with him. Hear me. I want you to labor hard for Christ. I want you to see the day of Christ's return as a motivation to suffer and to sacrifice gladly. But don't do it out of a place that doesn't firmly grasp that you are under the smile of God because of Christ. 